Welcome to Rising and happy Thursday. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. We both had harrowing journeys to the studio this morning. I did. I was involved in a little fender bender, and you had trouble getting on one of your beloved scooters. I know the internet wasn't working on my phone. It's like they're trying to silence us, Brianna. <laughs> That's right, but they cannot <laughs> keep us from giving you the news today. That's right. I'll, okay, what are we getting into? Actually, this is an auspicious topic, a topic <laughs> right. that goes all the way to the top. Suspicious. <laughs> what we're talking about, of course, is that a lawyer for an IRS supervisor has penned a letter alleging his client has evidence the Biden Justice Department is, quote, improperly handling the investigation into Hunter Biden's taxes. This is according to reporting from The Wall Street Journal. The IRS criminal supervisory special agent who is requesting whistleblower protections claims to have evidence that, quote, preferential treatment and politics have improperly infected decisions and protocols that would normally be followed by career law enforcement professionals in similar circumstances if the subject were not politically connected. The whistleblower also claims to have data contradicting testimony of a, quote, senior political appointee, as well as evidence of a, quote, failure to mitigate clear conflicts of interest in the ultimate disposition of the case. Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer tweeted in response to the reporting, quote, the Biden administration may be obstructing justice by blocking efforts to charge Hunter Biden for tax violations. We know Hunter Biden engaged in deceptive business schemes. GOP oversight will hold accountable anyone in the administration who may be covering up the criminal activity. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was pressed on the allegations on CNN this morning. Let's watch. Is now claiming to have information about alleged mishandling and political interference in, on in the ongoing criminal probe of Hunter Biden. Uh, is seeking, that person is seeking whistleblower protection to share information with Congress, according to this letter obtained by CNN. Our Sarah Murray just gave our viewers that reporting. And I just wonder if the White House has a comment. We're right now, as you know, we've been very clear to not comment on anything uh, related uh, to any type of investigation. So that is something uh, that we have been very, very diligent about and referring, any, uh, referring that to the Department of Justice. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Department of Justice declined a request for comment. So I've read the letter. I have it here. It's, it's very short. Mm. Um, it's you know, seeking whistleblower protection so that this IRS official can contribute to the discussion around whether Hunter Biden potentially did anything criminal. We were reminding each other of the timeline here that uh, the, the Fed started looking into Hunter Biden, and then he discovered that he did have a significant unpaid tax liability, which he then did pay back. But they are continuing to investigate in case there's more that he owes, in case um, he could have violated various rules about disclosing um, lobbying, wh whether he had to register as a foreign agent and failed to do so, violating that law because he was getting money uh, potentially from uh, from the Ukrainian energy company, and on and on and on. Yeah. So, that, you know, this is something of, of interest. Yeah, there was also that um, uh, accusation of lying on a gun registration form. Uh, you have to aver that you have not uh, used illegal substances, and he took that he hadn't, and obviously now with right. the laptop leak, there's ample evidence that he has, and has been very open with the struggle with, about his struggle with addiction. Right, and so, I, so and yeah. I don't think that should necessarily be illegal, but the president's son should not get preferential treatment here. Right, I mean, people are in prison for using drugs. Right, and you know, for for lying on one's form. So this is this is difficult because, of course, there is prosecutorial discre discretion that is used in many contexts and is not necessarily preferential treatment. It's does the government want to go after everybody who, let's say, they find smoked marijuana and also right. register for a gun? Right. 
these kind of decisions are made all the time. It's not necessarily the case that it has to be preferential treatment. He has paid this. Uh, what he was, what he was, had apparently owed on his taxes. So there is also an argument that, just to steel man this, there is an argument that the fact that the IRS is going after Hunter Biden is the opposite of preferential treatment. That there is a kind of political interest in, for, that conservatives have in pursuing this particular case. It was first uh, investigated in the lead up to 2020, and I think there was a lot of anxiety by Democrats about how this was going to affect. Joe Biden's presidential run, and of course, we're in the same situation this time around. It seems to me that it would behoove Biden just to have resolved this as quickly as possible before we got into campaign season. But here we are once again. Here we are. And obviously, <laughs> this is something I've commented on before. If the IRS looks at you closely enough, they're going to find that you technically did something wrong. I mean, I mean, there are some parallels, frankly, to the Trump uh, prosecution in that, look, if, they, if the feds really want to go after you, they really want to look at you, they'll find something. If they can't charge you with the underlying crime, they'll find some procedural violation in the way you defended yourself, you, you know, what you said, et cetera. So, you know, that's not, with the Hunter Biden stuff, that's not, that's not what, what, really what we care about. What we care about is if there's evidence of influence peddling that potentially impacted Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's not running for president. It's Joe Biden. And that is what I think is the legitimacy in continuing to look at this and certainly hearing from an IRS whistleblower. And also, if there's evidence that people involved in the government handled this case differently than they would have otherwise because they're sympathetic to Biden or they're, you know, they don't, they don't want to see Trump again or something like that. I mean, to be honest, it would be difficult to imagine that the behavior from the White House hasn't affected, you know, that, mm -hmm. that this case hasn't been handled dif dif differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's difficult to conceptualize just on a human level how the White House wouldn't be paying a lot of attention to and making sure every I is dotted and T is crossed when it's an investigation into the child of the President of the United States of America. So, I mean, I'm, I'd be very curious to hear what this whistleblower has to say, because there is preferential treatment and then there's preferential treatment. There is wanting to make sure everything's done perfectly because of the political implications right. of something, and there's trying to absolve somebody of responsibility for something they've actually done wrong because they're attempting to uh, protect the principle. And moreover, I mean, there is some attenuation between the uh, fact of Biden not having adequately paid his taxes subsequently paying the difference and potentially having some other inconsistencies in his taxes and the accusation that there was influence peddling with Joe Biden. Even if he did err or intentionally mislead on his taxes, that doesn't necessarily raise some red flag about what Joe Biden's behavior was. He could just be someone who's trying to keep more of his money from these ventures. There's, I don't know how much we're gonna, we should expect to find in the tax forms themselves that elucidate a relationship between him and Joe Biden that is improper. Um, so this does have a little bit of the air at this point of kind of political gamesmanship, but perhaps all is fair in um, love war and politics, given what's going on with the AG's office in, in New York and Donald Trump. Yeah, remember when there was that conversation, uh, I think it was maybe Jim Jordan who alleged that the FBI didn't want to look at this so close to an election because they didn't want to affect, they, they, they didn't want to be seen as being political. But that is itself a political decision right, that this should wait until after Joe Biden is, was safely elected or in the future after Joe Biden is safely reelected. Like that. That's also a political choice. Uh, of course, I mean it's difficult. That's I mean that's yeah. kind of saying it's I mean, difficult. It's all political, right? If, if it's if it's influence, if the if the whistleblower is saying that something is being handled differently, 
I just, I mean, that's, there's yeah. not a lot well, of there. He should so get we'll, whistleblower status, yeah. and we should find out for sure what he has to say. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope that happens. We'll have more rising right after this. Adios BuzzFeed News. The website is shuttering, according to senior news reporter Oliver Darcy over at CNN. BuzzFeed's CEO Jonah Peretti just sent out a note to staff announcing the closing of BuzzFeed News as part of layoffs, where 15% of staffers will be cut across the company. Peretti says, for BuzzFeed News, we have begun discussions with the News Guild about these actions. Glenn Greenwald tweeted, BuzzFeed News is shutting down, company laying off 180 staffers, 15% of the staff laid off. The remainder will just be tossed under the collapsing brand of the Huffington Post. Multi-pronged disintegration of the digital liberal media. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is big because, you know, BuzzFeed News really made a name for itself um, doing more substantive reporting uh, under Ben Smith that I think a lot of people predicted from the BuzzFeed brand, which was huge in, I'd say, the early aughts, uh, 2010 sort of an era. Yeah, um, 20, yeah 2010, 2012, 2014-2016-ish, yeah. yeah. And it was driven largely by these listicles and quizzes and pop culture tie-ins that were so addictive. I remember starting basically every morning at my computer with uh, 10 minutes at which least of Which grapefruit Buzzy. are you? <laughs> exactly. You have to know which Twilight <laughs> character. We, we, we People must know. Yeah. But then when then you BuzzFeed don't like the one you really, get, you take it again. <laughs> right. But BuzzFeed News really took off um, and was having a lot of substantive success under Ben Smith. And up and until, I think, the publishing of the Steele dossier really undermined the credibility of the institution somewhat. Now, interestingly, Ben Smith wrote an op-ed in The Atlantic today it seems tied to the news of BuzzFeed mm -hmm. news shutting down. He's not down. still there, we should mention. No, he became no the New York Times. Uh, he was doing great, great columns at the New York Times about media criticism and then left that to uh, start Semaphore, which uh, which has a team of reporters, including Dave Weigel, who we had on the show earlier today. Sorry, go ahead. Right. So the, the title of this piece from today in The Atlantic is, After All That, I Would Still Publish the Dossier. Yeah. The subtitle, But I Would Do Some Things Differently. So it is, it, it'll be an interesting moment. Uh, and a kind of retrospective to reflect on what seemed to be the last halcyon days of, of digital free media. We will certainly miss such classics as 37 Things White People Need to Stop Ruining in 2018, 20 Reasons Why White People Can't Be Trusted, written by someone who looks white to me, but what do I know? Sounds like you don't like um, white people, Robbie. I just hate them. <laughs> uh, I actually went to this article, but uh, this, this shows the whole problem with the, the format. You, I can't look at it's a list of, um, I don't know, GIFs or something? It's a list of GIFs, but it, they're all broken. You can't see them Remember anymore. Remember GIFs? When did those go the way of the dinosaur? I still use GIFs. Is it is it cringe to use GIFs on Twitter I or think something? it is. I think it's considered to That's be millennial, millennial oh. cr cringe. But look, oh. what do you make of um, uh, Glenn's analysis here? I mean, I do think that a part of the story has to be the role that Facebook has played in undermining the revenue streams for so many of these websites that depended on advertisers. But well, if most people are getting their news on these kind of aggregate websites like Facebook, Facebook, the actual print, the, the media publications that are actually generating the content just aren't getting a piece of the pie, and that's caused a lot of the problems. With I imagine media. BuzzFeed was significantly affected by something that has affected uh, 
all media companies, which is Facebook changing um, something about the algorithm. This happened 2019-ish that led to uh, uh, much less traffic to news websites. Um, everybody was affected by this. Uh, art articles that would easily go viral on Facebook that would get like hundreds of thousands of views very quickly because they were shared on Facebook and Facebook was it was a prime driver of news. Probably, if, if you're not in the news industry, you, probably, you may not be aware that from 2014 to 2020, Facebook was, f for all news uh, outlets, with rare exception, was a major, major driver of traffic to the website. Yeah. And overnight, that stopped. And that, that really hurt a lot of publications, I suspect, including BuzzFeed. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the CEO said, this is from the New York Times and is in the memo to employees about the layoffs, that he, quote, made the decision to overinvest in BuzzFeed's news division because he loved the work it produced, but acknowledged that he had been slow to accept that social media platforms would not provide the financial support needed to make BuzzFeed news profitable. He said, I've learned from these mistakes and the team moving forward has learned from them as well. We know the changes and improvements we are making today are necessary to steps to building a better future. He also mentioned that part of what's going on here is the pivot to video and that the um, preference for these kind of vertical video platforms has meant that fewer people are consuming print media and they are choosing to get their content in digital form, which is it's an interesting yeah. trade-off because so much of what happens on video media is based on the reporting that's done by these kinds of journalists. And I don't know that AI is going to be an adequate substitute. That is uh, another interesting point to bring up. That is another thing Facebook did. That time, I think inadvertently, although I think they also got sued for it, um, they, they, they misreported how well uh, native video was doing on Facebook, and that convinced a lot of media companies to pivot to video, to produce more video. Uh, in order to succeed on Facebook, and it, it, the analytics were not correct. What, yeah. what was reported, I, I, I don't, I don't think it was. I'm not alleging it was like deliberately malicious, but it was, it was misreported. By, it was several factors, several exponentially less uh, popular video was on Facebook than Facebook had claimed it was. Mm. That that misled a lot of companies. There was a law, big lawsuit over that. I'm looking at the trending quizzes right now. Um, I'll tell you which friend's character matches your personality, but first you have to share your home design. The bargaining going on here. <laughs> Only a true celeb expert will be able to get 11 out of 15 on this astrological compatibility quiz. Well, those are important, and I hope that those get preserved 11, somewhere. So you can be a true celeb expert, and you're still only going to get 11 <laughs> out of 15. Well, some people really are going to miss this app. One Twitter user commented, I'm sorry, but 95% of their content was garbage. Why your friends are problematic is not a news story. In response, Washington Post reporter Gene Park said, this comment illustrates BuzzFeed's longstanding branding issue. The part of BuzzFeed that makes the content is still going to exist. BuzzFeed News is shutting down, and they didn't create content like this. Right, I, and I am, I am further uh, compounding that error as I <laughs> laugh and make fun of BuzzFeed quizzes. Yeah, that part is not what they're shutting down. They're part, they're shutting down the journalism part of it, which was separate from the quizzes and all that. Yeah, and it, and it's worth noting, you know, uh, Peretti, uh, the CEO says that uh, the remaining staff. Will be focusing more on the company's. Uh, the, sorry, he told their meeting staff that he would be focusing more on the company's energy going forward on AI. 
saying we will power empower our digital teams and all of our brands to do the very best creative work and build an interface uh, where that work can be repacked well, and AI brought can to advertisers very more, easily. E more effectively. But again, this isn't about the quizzes, Robbie. This is about whether or not this news is going to be effective. They're shutting down BuzzFeed News, which outside of the Steele dossier did do some sensitive reporting. Ben Smith got a lot of accolades for how he was able to under, you know, go against expectations and make BuzzFeed News into a real news juggernaut at a time when other news media were flailing. So the idea that there's this kind of acknowledgement that AI, artificial intelligence, is going to be a better bet for doing what? It's not going to do investigative reporting. Are they basically conceding that there's a kind of AP-style repackaging of events that is going to get spit, spit out on the site? Um, if so, I, I got to say, that's a real shame. Uh, just recently, um, uh, David Sirota at The Lever scooped uh, a story about how uh, the uh, Fox News is going to be able to write off all or some of the payment, the 700-odd million of, that they owe over the Dominion uh, voting trial, or trial that never was, lawsuit, uh, write it off on their taxes. And, um, you know, you know, former host Crystal Ball noted that it's kind of remarkable that a small outlet like that keeps getting all these scoops and doing all this investigative reporting. We've had um, a status coup uh, reporters who were on the ground in East Palestine when all the other journalists have left talking about their experiences there. And unfortunately, independent media like status coup and the lever seem increasingly to be the only ones who are willing to invest and in actually doing the investigative reporting that makes mm. the news. Are we all going to be hinging on this really tenuous lever of a few, <laughs> lever pun, in, pun not intended, of a few small outlets like that doing the work that bolsters an entire online digital media enterprise? Mm. Well, I don't know. It's, uh, it's definitely going to be a different uh, media ecosystem uh, moving forward. But I, you know, I think some of these companies got too big for their britches. They had really good years, good times, and they invested a lot. And then and they, you know, the, the evaluations they got were bonkers. And over time, they couldn't. Right, but also, worth that. but also, the funding model has fundamentally changed yeah. in a way that is not It's not entirely the fault or of these institutions or the quality that is being mm -hmm. produced. If you can't get advertisers to fund your newspaper in the classic sense, the way that newspapers yeah. have been funded since time immemorial, because. They're reading their news on another app that is getting all those advertisers. They're reading their news on Facebook. Why would I pay BuzzFeed to advertise on their page when I can get it on Facebook and pay them all of the money? That's a fundamental modeling problem that's going to cause a lot of socially useful, very beneficial, conceivably profitable industries to go out of business. Well, and that's a problem that needs to be addressed well, at its root. Sure. They, there will be alternative funding models like there is for like the, the subscriber model, the donor model, all sorts of things. I, I'm not... Uh, I'm not going to be fatalistic about it. It's just going to be different. <laughs> fatalistic? We already see local news is basically dead. We're, we're at the end of print journalism. I mean, it's not fatalistic I mean, to observe what's already happened. We're at the end of print journalism. The happened. New York Times is, is yeah, doing the, better than ever. So it's a good it's a good thing that big corporate-run institutions like the New York Times, with all the bias that it has that we've been reporting on, are basically the only people who can survive in this what media What do you mean the only people? The media ecosystem is more, is, is more diverse. No, the Twitter, the online YouTube media ecosystem can yeah. proliferate, but we have to rely on real news that somebody has to generate somewhere. And, and being cavalier about the reality that we're all basically relying on the same corporate media sources, that's a real 
problem. The, the, the subscription model, look at, look at what's happening with everybody. They thought it was going to be a deal getting rid of basic cable. Now we're all paying cable prices in the form of $7 here, $7 there, $7 here. The same thing is happening with news. People like us, we have to have subscriptions to a million different websites because we have to read and report on the news. But the average person is not going to be paying $50 out of pocket every month because they want to read Rolling Stone and they want to read the New York Times and they want to read New York Magazine and they want to read whatever oh, no. else. Well, they, no, they, they pay for one or two or however many they can afford for people who process that and give you Get, like that's kind of what we do. We give you the highlights of what appears in various other publications. We we give our own impressions of what's good reporting, what's bad reporting. We do it from two different perspectives. Yeah, but and who's going to do more good reporting? Having someone to weigh in on what you can trust and what you can't, that's good, mm -hmm. but it's necessary to have people who are at, actually doing investigative journalism, and nobody wants to fund it. And there's not a subscription model for that unless you want to go ahead and donate to Status Quo or The Lever. I, I don't agree with that. I, I I think there's a lot of people doing very good investigative work that is that is funded by their directly by their supporters and it's it's that's great and that's gonna be the future and so be it. More rising right after this. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. officially kicked off his 2024 presidential campaign yesterday. In his nearly 50-minute announcement speech, RFK Jr. leaned on his populist roots, promising to eradicate, quote, the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. Most notably, he went after former President Trump, blaming him for the historic lockdowns during the pandemic. Let's watch a bit of that. The worst thing that he did to this country, to our civil rights, to our economy, to the middle class in this country, was the lockdown. Now, President Trump, in fairness, let me just make this point. We'll tell people, well, the lockdown wasn't my idea. It was my bureaucrats rolled me on it. I was saying we shouldn't do it. But that's not a good enough excuse. He was the president of the United States. He, and as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. On May 2nd, 2020, 600 doctors wrote and signed a letter to President Trump begging him not to do, allow the lockdowns. Kennedy is the second Democrat challenging President Biden, and as we highlighted yesterday, he's earned support from some 14% of Biden voters, according to recent polling. Here to discuss his prospects is reporter at Semaphore, Dave Weigel. Welcome, Dave. Good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you were on the ground uh, for RFK Jr.'s announcement um, speech. Uh, tell us, you know, what what the crowd was like. I think there's a perception we've discussed it here that perhaps he's going to have actually more appeal, given his statements about vaccine and COVID and you know lockdowns, uh, that he might actually have more appeal on the right. Was that reflective of the kind of person who showed up? Yeah, I can answer that in two parts. One, it was a, it was a large crowd. This is a a, the Park Plaza Hotel in Boston, a place that a lot of Democrats have, have, were used for election night events or launch events. Uh, the, the second floor space can fit around a thousand people, and it was pretty full. There was a, a small row of media, uh, and and there were people in, the, in, a, in a front section who paid more money to be there. There were people around the hotel who paid five dollars. Uh, that was uh, that was notable because this, this is, I think, it, you set it up in your intro. Uh, somebody who's received n not as much media attention as your average 14% polling candidate. I mean, I, I was there when Nikki Haley launched, she had a lot more media. She's not near, mm. nearly at 14%. Uh, 
Um, but the second point you made, yes, I did find there, the people I talked to, I tried to get there about two hours early and talked to people uh, who were there, some who traveled from nearby, some who, one who traveled from Sacramento, one who traveled from New Jersey, from Florida. Uh, it did skew, I wouldn't say more conservative. Uh, it skewed more anti-Washington, anti-censorship. Uh, and I need to lecture you guys on how not every, every partisan disagreement fits the scales and fits neatly with people's ideology. There are people who had voted for, I asked everyone, who'd you vote for last time? There were some people who wrote in somebody. There was some Trump. There, were, there was some Biden. But there were Biden voters who said, I just wanted the chaos to end, uh, and, and I, I don't like Trump. So I, well, but I want somebody who tells the truth about the establishment and about media censorship and is not Trump. So this is not, not I think, 90 percent of the electorate, but a chunk of people who might vote in Democratic primary, absolutely. A very heterodox, probably the most the – most, ideologically diverse crowd I've seen at one of these launches. Yeah, I completely understand RFK Jr.'s appeal. I, I did a radar on it a week or two mm. ago. But I am curious about how two aspects of his pitch are resonating with more independent and right-leaning voters. One, the identity as a kind of uh, Kennedy Democrat, very strongly. It's mm -hmm. very prominent on his campaign materials and in some of the remarks that he's been making. And two, the choice to go after Trump over the lockdowns other candidates who have been teasing or who have announced runs on the right have been very reluctant to go after Trump directly, I think, um, smartly observing what happened to folks who did so back in 2016. Um, and I'm curious how you think mm -hmm. that went over with the people you spoke to on the ground. Uh, very well. I mean, that was the disappointment from some people I mentioned who voted for Biden because they, they thought Trump was lackluster during the pandemic. Uh, that was... I think the most motivated, the, the loudest the crowd was getting was when uh, Kennedy was going after, after Trump for not not listening to some of the skeptics early in the pandemic who said you don't need to do you don't need to do lockdowns, not not federally. But as president, you should be discouraging people from doing that. Something Trump did do. Remember his uh, reopened Michigan tweets in May of, 20, of 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, but something that in his book, Ron DeSantis will say Trump got rolled on in speeches, as you point out, that, that DeSantis and other Republicans don't criticize. Uh, that, but what, what Kennedy, Kennedy kind of looped that into this critique of the pharmaceutical industry, this critique of corporate America, this critique of the NIH, uh, the, the EPA, the, the entire federal government, which he called captured. Uh, and his argument was that Trump was the swamp. Trump, Trump uh, left the swamp in power. Trump was owned by the swamp during, during the pandemic. Tr uh, Trump let, uh, let, corporations make billions of dollars in profit with with uh, no bid contracts that was that was his case that did connect and you're right that's not one that republicans have been saying a lot they'll they do more praise for trump or they'll kind of divert things and say blame his problems on democrats or or people like fauci or people like deborah burks not on trump himself kennedy did have more of a co coherent critique uh in this speech i mean this is this is not everything he's ever said in his career i mean the his his problems with Democrats come from his other critiques of vaccines you didn't make. But his critique of you had a president who now is saying that the lockdowns were bad, but didn't do anything about them in power. Uh, that connected in the room, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's rare, actually, to hear a political figure say, as RFK Jr. Mm -hmm. said, um, Trump gets criticized a lot. Some of it was fair. Some of it was unfair. Like, that's not that's not a Democratic right. talking point. Actually, one of the only other people I can think of who has said a version of that from the Democratic side was Bernie Sanders, who yeah. would say that he liked some of, you know, mm -hmm. Trump's rhetoric on trade, for instance, or, or you know, help, helping labor. And then but but we'll say, but he's a charlatan and didn't live up to it. You know, that kind of thing. Mm hmm.
Yeah, but even when Sanders says the first part of that, he gets roasted for it. And that's something that Kennedy, who has been, I think, pretty well ostracized from the Democratic Party's mainstream, doesn't care about. I mean, Sanders is trying to break into the party. Mm -hmm. Kennedy kind of is, too. But Kennedy's going over. I I do think there will be some overlap in 2016 Bernie voters and and 2024 Kennedy voters, but specifically the kind of people who just don't don't think the party establishments rig everything. Uh, are, are going to gravitate to, to that message from Kennedy. It overlaps with some of what Marianne Williamson saying. I just kind of refresh myself and listen to her launch speech after Kennedy's. That critique of crony capitalism, not not saying we need to replace it with socialism, that we need to replace it with just capitalism that is not rigged. Um, he, he, he makes that, but he twins it with, and the government has been uh, captured by these people, and, and the, we're, we're less healthy. I mean, I think actually the most unique thing he was saying in, in terms of who's speaking in this race uh, was was talking about the, the chronic disease. Why are Americans fatter? Why are we dying younger? Why are there more diseases? Obviously, leading into the controversial stuff, he mentioned autism rates, but didn't talk about his ideas about vaccine, vaccines causing them. Um, but by that sort of stuff, there are things that normal people who are not political junkies are concerned about. And if they hear somebody talking about them, I do think it clicks. Uh, I, I think he the parts, the highlights of that speech, maybe not all hour and 58 minutes, but what you're talking about, yeah, that's something that a lot of established political figures might not want to edge into, especially the part about Trump, because they know they're going to get blown up by a media that they generally would like to be on the right side of. And Kennedy does not care. Yeah, it is interesting that uh, Marianne's speech did have a lot of those very same notes, really strong, actually, mm-hmm. um, con- condemnations of uh, the swamp, Washington, et cetera. It is, it, it is interesting to me the extent to which a lot of the left seems to be very skeptical of Marianne despite that because of her choice to run within the Democratic Party. And it doesn't seem to me at mm-hmm. this point that RFK Jr. has been hit with that same suspicion. You know, why are you trying to work with the, the inside? Um, how can we believe that you won't succumb to the forces within the Democratic Party? Why do you think the Democratic Party is going to give you a fair shot after what we've seen before with Marianne's last mm-hmm. run or with Bernie's last two runs? What do you make of that? Yeah, he hasn't litigated as much as Marianne has. I mean, we don't know if the Democrats are going to sanction debates. Let's say it's let's say this is it. It's Joe Biden. It's Marianne Williamson. It's RFK. Uh, They've not been clear yet if they would allow debates. Now, there's not the same talk you had with Republicans in 2020 where they literally canceled primaries, just gave the delegates to um, to Donald Trump. Uh, But when I talk to state party chairs, they say, well, anyone can show up. It's it's a weird the attitude is very different than Democrats, even in 2016, certainly 2016, even in 2020. There's a lot more worry about, oh, Tulsi Gabbard's going to get on stage and she's going to be a problem. I've, I've not detected that from Democrats this time. There is a lot of confidence, I think, in I wouldn't even say epistemic closure, but like that the, they ele- their electorate was going to renominate Joe Biden and that these opinions that we've been talking about, uh, these views that RFK Jr. has, they're just not worth dealing with because those are not. Maybe your voters are going to show up in the New Hampshire primary, but they're not going to be, re- be relevant down the line. Now, they've not thought deeply about Kenny. They love, they love to just not t- have to take him seriously. I think if he, if he got a lot of traction, you hear about stuff he tried to preempt, which is, you know, he had a very, very checkered youth before he was a serious environmental lawyer, you know, arrested for heroin possession, things like that. Um, but at the moment, he's kind of floating because he's just, he just is able to, to, deliver his message to a crowd that doesn't care about the Democratic Party, doesn't care about the media, even the media in the room. I saw CNN, I saw the New York Times, um, not every big media outlet, but I saw a lot of very popular podcasts and and streaming shows um, 
that I, I mean, some of them I had somebody I had them point out to me, who is that? <laughs> but people that people have built followings during the pandemic that I think are going to uh, be interested in his campaign, even if he never makes it on to, you know, mm-hmm. the front page of a newspaper or makes it on, onto a, a Sunday show. I yeah, think he's, he's reaching to a different audience. That's not a majority, but it's that it is that is outside well, politics, outside normal politics that doesn't care about the process as much. Certainly. And your point about the lack of media coverage of him versus the media attention being paid to someone like Nikki Haley, who is far, far mm-hmm. more out of it or, you know, not a serious threat to Trump or DeSantis um, compared mm-hmm. to it's, it's it was a very, very brilliant observation on your part. Thank you so much, Dave, for being here and sharing uh, your reporting with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Hours after officially announcing his campaign for the presidency, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. went on Fox News' Tucker Carlson tonight and elaborated on what he considers to be America's most pressing issues. Let's listen. I think that the general theme of my speech was this corrupt merger of state and corporate power. Which has, uh, which has gotten, uh, which is turning our country into a corporate kleptocracy, into a system of socialism for the rich and this kind of a cushy socialism for the rich and this kind of brutal, um, merciless capitalism for the poor. Kennedy did not hold back on his sentiments about the nation's involvement in the Ukraine war either. Let's take a listen. Americans care about the underdog. They care about that kind of suffering. But the question is, why are we in the Ukraine? Because Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, said that we're there to exhaust the Russians. President Biden has said that we're there to, to, to deplatform, to depose Vladimir Putin. And if that's why we're there, and we're killing a lot of Ukrainians as pawns in a proxy war between, between two great powers. Here's one last thing I would say. Nobody talks about this. There's 14,000 Ukrainian civilians who have died, but 300,000 troops. The Russians are killing Ukrainians at a 7 to 1 to 8 to 1 ratio. They cannot sustain this. What we're being told about this war is just not true. Hmm. Powerful messaging, I got to say. He's been on a roll. His speech really hit the nail on the head of the corporate corruption that I think really motivated a lot of both Bernie voters and Trump voters. And he seems to recognize that this is the through line for so many disaffected voters. He says, "Uh, give me a sword. I need an army. And it can't just be the party. I need Democrats, Republicans, and independents. I won't pretend to agree with you on every position, but it would make America a safe place to debate your positions, and I will give you an ear and an open mind. You know, he's polling at, what was at 14 percent in the Democratic, uh, among Democratic primary voters, which is is pretty good, actually. It's uh, it's sizable compared to the attention that, for instance, Nikki Haley is getting, uh, uh, despite not having much support at all. She's getting a lot of media attention. He's getting almost none. In fact, I think Fox News was the only media outlet covering RFK Jr. Obviously, he made an announcement, and then he was on Tucker Carlson's show. He wasn't anywhere else. In fact, the rest of the media, the mainstream media, to the extent they want to talk about him at all, it is to warn you not to talk about him. Let's play this clip from Aaron Burnett. Biden railing against vaccines, too. Even members of his own family are refusing to support him. Jeff Zeleny is out front. It was a political rally steeped in Kennedy family history with one critical missing piece, most of the storied Kennedy family. 
Today in Boston, as he announced a long-shot presidential bid, I am going to take back this country with your help. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. evoked images of his father and uncle as he bluntly acknowledged his siblings wish he wouldn't be launching a campaign to challenge President Biden. There are other members of my family who are not here today. With a famous political name, he plunged into the fringe of today's politics, railing against the safety of vaccines and what he calls corrupt corporate power in America. Men- I, I, th- I thought it was funny they say, like, oh, yeah, if he, you know, the, his own family's not supporting him. Where were the other Kennedys? And at that moment, they're showing a picture of John F. Kennedy, who is dead. <laughs> like, he's not there because he's not alive. Yeah, well, look, it has been the case that his uh, siblings have co-signed this letter years ago, uh, distancing themselves from some of his right. uh, feelings about vaccine skepticism. But it is really interesting in that in that clip, they go on to interview some people who attended the rally and they ask them the question, what do you think about the fact that his family doesn't even want to be here, that family doesn't even want to support yeah. him? They're really going with that line of attack and the vaccine it's a attack. dumb line of attack. And it's, it's the, really The family odd. attack. No, nobody, nobody cares that his family's not there. As you pointed out, the kind of relevant political candidates are no longer with us. Um, and it, it feels as though, it feels like a weird, like, tattletale sort of a line that <laughs> you expect people to prioritize an interpersonal family dispute uh, over other things. One person interviewed later in that Aaron Burnett clip um, was asked about the vaccine issues, and she said, well, honestly, there's a whole panoply of things that I'm voting on, and I don't have to agree with him on that to want to support him for other reasons. And I think mainstream Democrats who think that that particular line is going to land are really underestimating, one, how much these other issues like the war in Ukraine, domestic policy issues, environmental issues, um, and the like are motivating voters more. And also the fact that a lot of Americans are, in fact, mad at Donald Trump and Joe Biden for their COVID policies. And RFK seems to be, RFK Jr. seems to be one of the only politicians who has successfully leveraged a criticism of Donald Trump and the Biden administration both over the vaccine policies. He, uh, you shared this uh, tweet from Dan Rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, the press should be careful about covering Robert Kennedy Jr.'s quixotic run for president so as not to amplify his dangerous conspiracy theories about vaccines. That is the approach that I expect the mainstream media to to take with him. Actually, if he starts doing better, if he's getting even better poll numbers, they will descend on him with a, it is, with the most gatekeeping kind of, all the, all the reporting will be about how dangerous it is for you to consume news and information reporting about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah. Um, it, well, will be, yeah. it will be that. It will be... And, of course, you would never... No one would ever say... Dan Rather would never say, you know, it, it, it is dangerous and unsafe to cover, you know, President Biden's speech about why we should fund the Ukrainian right. army for the rest of all time right. until no one is left alive. Uh, you would never say that's... You know, Dangerous. Joe Biden has his fingerprints on some of the most destructive policies that have ever come down the pike in American political mm-hmm. life, uh, from the crime bill to NAFTA. And it's ridiculous to be using this sort of framing. Including incorrect things he, he incidentally said about COVID and vaccines. Uh, uh, of course. <laughs> and look, I don't want to downplay either the the negative consequences of certain kinds of vaccine hesitancy in California, where RFK Jr., uh, I believe, lives in, in that kind of like, uh, he's, he's married, obviously, to a Hollywood actress. Like, in that kind of, those social circles, vaccine skepticism is very popular and has led to these outbreaks of horrible diseases like meningitis among children in school populations there. Um, and, 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 and volumes 
like we haven't seen since before we had vaccines. And kids are really hurt by this and they die and that's an important thing. But when you, when you look at all of the issues that are facing Americans mm -hmm. and you put on one side Ukraine, you put on one side uh, environment and the betrayals of the Biden administration with the ConocoPhillips drilling in Alaska, you put all of the existential issues that are affecting the American public, crony capitalism. Did you just hear, about, by the way, how the, in the Aaron Barnett segment they said what he calls corporate capitalism, what he calls crony capitalism, as if there's some subjectivity about the corruption of government. And put on the other side, eh, the guy thinks that vaccines cause autism. Like, I, I, this is serious. I'm not saying that there aren't serious implications of vaccine hesitancy, but I, I don't know on what planet you have to live to think that voters are going to take one single issue and that's going to cause them to ignore everything that they know and care right. about. When you have Joe Biden, he was literally accused of a number of instances of sexual misconduct, and the Democratic Party trotted out every woman from Kirsten Gillibrand to Stacey Abrams to say, nothing to see here, folks. If they were willing to ignore and not investigate, I'm not, I don't know what happened. Nobody does, except for the people involved. Mm -hmm. But to shut down the Tara Reid allegations without an investigation like they did, to expect everyone to fall in line, as Joe Biden was saying, sure. fund the cops more, as literally millions of people were in the street in the largest protest movement ever in Black Lives Matter in 2020, to, have, to hear him on a leaked phone call to every black leader in the country um, saying, you know, sit down, sit aside, it's your turn. I'm not going to do George Floyd justice in policing. It's Latino's turn now. And to expect everyone to fall in line and vote for him regardless and ignore all that but you think that oh vaccine has oh, well think... especially for biden especially on the sexual misconduct stuff look if i had been inclined to vote for biden i wasn't so i didn't have this dilemma if i was inclined to vote for him would i have decided not to vote for him because of for instance the tara reed accusation probably not probably i don't think at the end of the day there was enough definitive proof to change my mind even though i you know i found her credible. I, I, I like her views. She's had her on the show. I, you know, all due respect to her, everything, not trying to contradict what she said, but it was a long ago incident and there wasn't enough evidence for, I, I could see why you would not change your mind. But Biden's own standard for adjudicating these things and the general liberal democratic progressive standard is believe there does not need to be proof. You believe it's because who would ever lie about this? So it should yeah. just be taken as an article of faith. That was how so many of these other Me Too incidents have been approached. That is what Biden literally said. That's what Kamala said That's what when Kamala she was said. running against so, Biden with the right. first accusation. So, you know, live, live up to your hypocrisies. Yeah, the Democratic Party taught voters lesser of two evilism. They exist because of lesser of two evilism. They would not be able to sustain without being able to say to voters, you know, at the end of the yeah. day, I know this, this candidate sucks. I know Hillary Clinton sucks. I know that Joe Biden sucks. But you can't vote for Trump. You can't let Trump win again. Mm. So now they should not be surprised when voters, understanding that candidates aren't perfect, and sometimes you got to Choke, choke down some beliefs that you don't like, are more than happy to do so when they look at someone like RFK Jr., whose upsides, in many people's view, are going to yeah. seem much more significant than his downsides. Indeed. We'll have more Rising right after this. Microsoft will be dropping Twitter from its advertising platform beginning next week. Microsoft said this, starting April 25th, 2023, smart campaigns with multi-platform will no longer support Twitter. An email has started to go out to Microsoft advertising users saying that Digital Marketing Center, DMC, will no longer support Twitter starting on April 25th.
From this point on, users will not be able to access their Twitter account through its digital marketing center's social media management tool, Microsoft says. The Microsoft advertising feature previously allowed advertisers to manage their social media accounts on multiple platforms in one location. Companies that use Microsoft advertising will still be able to oversee and generate content for Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn through Microsoft's DMC platform, Mashable Reports. This change comes days before Twitter plans to shut down its old API platform. Let's hear what CEO Elon Musk had to say about negativity circulating on Twitter yesterday. If somebody wants to say something that's uh, technically legal, but, but is, um, you know, by most definitions, uh, hateful, they're not gonna, we're not going to promote that to, to people. We're not going to recommend hateful content to people. Um, we'll, we'll put that behind a warning label, saying this, this, this speech is probably something you, you don't want. So and now this is something we have to be very careful that we roll out and, and, and that it does not become uh, what, what is intended to be good does not become bad. According to this chart, Twitter's top 1,000 advertisers have left since Musk's takeover in 2022. Mm. So this advertisement platform is not quite what I thought it was when I first read the story. I thought they were saying they were no longer going to advertise on no, Twitter. No, this is much more significant. Right. It is this service that Microsoft has that kind of centralizes for businesses all of their social media accounts into one place so that they can respond uniformly to various things. Um, it's a it's a service they pay for. They pay how much did you say? Uh, the cheapest package cost forty two thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that's a lot so of this money. is for big corporations. Right. You'd imagine you know these multinational conglomerates who have a million and one brands um, and have you know there's a, a different t a Twitter profile for. Pepsi versus Mountain Dew versus all of these, these these different brands under one umbrella. And you can imagine that as people are DMing brands, flagging things, problems that they're having with their products, right. wanting refunds on their airplane tickets, yes. whatever it is, to have to check American all of Airlines, <laughs> I've been on this flight for five hours and it hasn't left yet and there's a screaming baby. <laughs> that kind of thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, like that pop culture tie-in. Um, but, you know, so you can appreciate why this is actually a very useful technical um, adaptation for companies like that to have. So for Twitter to not be part of that package, to basically say to all these companies, you can manage your Instagram, your Facebook, your Snapchat, whatever from this portal. But when you go to check your Twitter, you got to go do that separately on your own is, is a kind of, um, kind of a competitive brinkmanship here that really goes beyond individual brands saying, I'm just going to not use Twitter anymore. So they, Microsoft didn't explain why they're doing this. Um, Obviously, there's a potential that people using this platform still need, still would, would prefer it to include Twitter. Um, so this is like a calculated decision on Microsoft's part that its customers will not revolt because well, Twitter's no longer. It's unclear that there's a lot of places for them to go. Again, the issue with some of these really large tech companies is that there, there are only so many competitors that can offer the kind of technological support that a company like Microsoft mm -hmm. uh, has. And it's worth noting, we don't know, as you said, what the incentives are, but Microsoft uh, is the tech giant behind chat, GPT, and OpenAI, which Elon Musk has been very critical of in his last few interviews with uh, Tucker Carlson and also with the BBC reporter, mm -hmm. saying that he feels like um, these have been developed to have a bias against the right in favor of liberals, uh, and that he's working to develop his own version of ChatGPT that would be kind of objective and neutral.
So, I mean, there is this conflict of interest here. I don't, mm -hmm. Is it the case that Microsoft is basically upset with Elon Musk for um, smearing their, their products, et cetera? It's unclear. What is clear that Elon Musk has lashed out uh, back against uh, this decision. He responded to a news tweet about Microsoft's decision to drop Twitter from its advertising platform, saying, quote, they trained illegally using Twitter data, lawsuit time. Hmm. So the implication is, I guess, that some improperly used Twitter data information, et cetera, was used in the development of the Microsoft product, and now Elon is getting litigious over it. Well, let's go to that second part of this story, the comments he was making about harmful content. Mm. Here, we again get into the classic dilemma where he's saying that we, he thinks Twitter should turn down hateful speech or things people agree are hateful. But that's the very problem because people don't agree uh, on absolutely. what is hateful. And what is hateful is a subjective determination. Even if it's subjective if an algorithm's making it because we teach the algorithm what it should feel about these things. It's subjective if a human being is making it, obviously. Part of the whole frustration with the previous iteration of the company is that people of a very kind of liberal, on COVID, very you know, militantly anti-COVID, were making decisions about what kind of content is hateful and harmful, and that that resulted in censorship of dissident perspectives. That is the that is the whole that's the whole game. Yeah, not only is it subjective, but folks pretending as though the decision is going to be based on the mm -hmm. even subjective feelings of the people who work at Twitter, some panel of ethicists or whatever, or even Elon Musk's subjectivity, are missing the point. Elon Musk keeps saying he's going to make these departures from old Twitter and finding him, his way right back to the same old policies of old Twitter with respect right. to a lot of this content moderation, because the decisions have always been about what advertisers will bear, not about what Jack Dorsey personally wanted or what any individual at Twitter personally wanted, but about some broader public consensus about what the average person, what the average consumer wants to see on the timeline. And that's an assessment that are, that's being made by advertisers. And when you look at statistics and you see how many advertisers have fled the website, top advertisers have fled the website since Elon Musk took over, and you see right. how much of a money pit this is for him, it's completely unsurprising that he would end up right back where the, the, the profit centers say that he should end up. And this, I mean, as much as you want to say it's about free speech and his subjective views and you know, wanting to make, change things on the margins for his friends and allies, at the end of the day, money talks. I mean, I guess it does. But a lot of the uh, censorship issues we've complained about or then the people on the right have complained about were not necessarily content moderation decisions that, ad that advertisers were necessarily flagging for people. It was what the people in the media or the government. Yeah, well, it's, it's the people. public perception. Yeah. It's not that it's right or fair or accurate. Yeah. I mean, many people picked up on the, that BBC reporter's inability to articulate how his timeline has changed for the negative. He just kind of said, well, many people are saying that their timeline experiences are worse. That being said, that public perception mm -hmm. is obviously in line on some level with what advertisers believe. Maybe journalists are creating that story, and maybe that's unfair to Elon Musk. But the reality is people are responding to the perception that Elon Musk is creating a hostile environment on Twitter, and it's a place that more and more people are staying away from as a consequence. He, uh, he once tweeted, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Right. Remember that? Like, that is something that probably a lot of liberal people think is, in fact, hateful and could have been censored under the previous version of the company. So again, you can say that 
and I think the scale's tipped way too far and should be, you know, we should dial this back on the broad suppression of what is supposedly hateful. Um, or again, better yet, leave it to users. Leave it to users. Users can ultimately decide what content they don't want to engage with. We can empower them to do that. That's, I think that's, that's not the, the issue, Robbie. And, and let's take the hatefulness aside. People are fleeing Twitter. Advertisers have skepticism about, about Twitter, not just because we've seen some, um, you know, you know, a large number of swastikas or something in the feed. Him do, making choices like making the Twitter emoji a Shiba Inu and saying this is the new CEO of Twitter, a dog. Mm -hmm. Him deciding to put jokes about 69ing in NPR's um, uh, Twitter mm -hmm. description. That kind of immature, arguably, not arguably, I got to say, unprofessional behavior is making people feel, I, I would argue, uncertain about the future of the app, unwilling to invest a lot of resources there. It's not just about, I, I, this is like actual bigoted, hateful, derogatory language. It's about a lack of confidence in the company. And CEOs know this. I mean, we're all watching Succession. We all understand that a lot of the market is determined by just kind of vibes and confidence in the leadership of a team. And Elon Musk, at some level, has to take responsibility for the fact that he's been treating this all like a big joke and a personal pet project, and that's going to have financial implications for him. Yeah, well, we will see. Uh, Musk has said Twitter is willing to address advertisers' concerns and work out with the companies about where ads are going to be displayed on the website, but, quote, freedom of speech is paramount. That's what he said. More rising right after this. So we have some breaking news. Apparently, Delegate Stacey Plaskett, who is the representative from the Virgin Islands, you might remember her participating in that hearing about the Twitter files that friend of the show Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi uh, participated in. Well, guess what? She is threatening Matt Taibbi with potential jail time due to a perjury charge. This is according to Lee Fong, who's working now with Matt Taibbi, and we also had on the show recently. He has a copy of this letter from Plaskett to Taibi that says, uh, it says a lot of those things, but under the, uh, one of the things it says is under the federal perjury statute, providing false information is punishable by up to five years imprisonment. So she is hitting out at Taibi uh, following this, you know, we've covered all the aspects of this, but Mehdi Hassan accused Taibi of getting some fundamental things wrong in their Twitter files. Taibi acknowledged a couple errors, and then Mehdi Hassan claimed victory and said, there's nothing to see here. The, the whole intellectual undergirding of the Twitter files has been exposed as, you know, the house of cards and has really claimed victory. Um, Lee Fong has done some, some very good follow-up reporting showing that, yes, while those errors were acknowledged, they do not totally undercut the thing, particularly this error, this confusion in, in one of the tweets between two different different groups, CISA, which is a, a federal, uh, is a government organization that was involved, and then CIS, which is a nonprofit. And in one place, uh, Taibi confused the two, uh, but it does not change. They, both of them, both of these groups were involved in relaying information to Twitter having to do with content moderation. So the idea that because in, in one place he identified it as the government group instead of the non-government group, it takes the whole thing down, makes no sense whatsoever. But it, you know, in fairness to the Hassan's perspective, let's play that, uh, that clip uh, where, uh, where Taibi, the clip in question where Taibi speaks before Congress. And what we see in the Twitter files 
is that Twitter executives did not distinguish between DHS or CISA and this group EIP. For instance, we would see a communication that said, um, from CISA escalated by EIP. So they were essentially identical in the eyes of the company. Uh, EIP, in, in, by its own data, and this is in reference to what, what you brought up, Mr. Congressman, um, according to their own data, they significantly uh, targeted more dis what they call disinformation on the right than on the left um, by a factor, I think, of, uh, of about 10 to 1. Uh, so, and I, and I say that it's not a Republican at all. It's just a fact of what we're looking at. Um, so, yes, we have come to the, to the realization that this bright line that we imagine that exists between, say, the FBI or the DHS or the GEC and these private companies is, is illusory and that it's, what's more important is this constellation of kind of quasi-private organizations that do this work. So, so that, that ultimate point, that there's a const constellation of quasi-government groups working together and that that produced the chilling effect of the Twitter censorship, that is, that is still a robust finding based on Twitter files reporting. Tybee did confuse those two organizations in one of his tweets about it. It's and clearly not perjury anyway, well, even if he is confused there, because it was a mistake and you have to, it was not a willful effort to deceive. But the overall point does stand. Yeah, so uh, of course on Mehdi's show, Mehdi raised a bunch of inconsistencies or what he thought were errors, um, some of which Matt Taibbi admitted to, including this one, although Lee's follow-up has made the argument that it wasn't really so much, some, such as much of a, a mistake as um, Matt conceded on the show. Regardless, in this letter, two things are interesting. One is that Plaskett doesn't actually make an effort to explain the mistake. She quotes Matt's admission that it was a mistake as, you know, uh, just to, to stand for the proposition that it was wrong, and then goes on to say, as you mentioned, that knowingly providing material false information to this committee or subcommittee is a crime. Of course, if it is a mistake, then it's not knowingly providing false information. And all that Matt conceded was that he was in an error, not that he was intentionally trying to mislead the committee. So with all of that in mind, it seems very clear that this kind of a letter is an effort to threaten and coerce and punish Taibbi for giving testimony that was inconvenient to the Democratic Party. And that's a real problem, and it's exactly what Li Fang has been warning of this whole time, and while he, why he's treated the characterization of Matt's remarks during that congressional hearing so seriously, um, saying that it's not it's it's not okay. This isn't just like a tit for tat, accusing someone of lying in a casual way or even making a mistake in a casual way. There could be really substantive consequences here, including jail time. And this letter seems to confirm that Lee's feelings about this weren't just paranoia, but, but rooted in a real justifiable concern. Yeah, I, I mean, this this letter from Plaskett is truly incredible. So let me read a little bit more of it. So. Plaskett um, quotes the, the, the statement that we just played for you, the tra a transcript of it that, that uh, Taibbi made, and then says, the above statement now seems to be contradicted by your own admission. On April 6, 2023, you appeared on the Mehdi Hassan show. During that interview, Mr. Hassan pointed out that your tweet had added, uh, had, had flipped the two acronyms. Um, 
when presented with this misinformation, you acknowledged you had made an error by intentionally altering the acronym CIS, and you subsequently deleted your erroneous tweet. Um, <laughs> he he did not acknowledge intentionally altering the acronym. She is she's well, implying she malicious. He. Thought it was referring to right. the other organization, so he he did a where you fix. Sometimes if someone says it gives a quote to you as a journalist, and they say they they there's miss there's a like a like a misspeaking thing, you fix it so that it looks right, and you and you put that in brackets, which is what he did. It, it, it's not an intentional effort to deceive. Right, as she the makes intentionality it out to is making the edit, not right. that, but because he thought that he was correcting something that was in fact an error, not because he thought right. he was intentionally misleading. Which does not open you up to perjury, as she then goes well, on to suggest. Well, one would like to think, but you know, we're living in this world where everyone seems to think that weaponizing the government in various ways is justified, if you know, that the ends mm -hmm. justify the means. You have an investigation into Hunter Biden's tax information, which may or may not be based in politics and may or may not be based in a real a real kind of fraud here. You have the investigation into Donald Trump's payment to Stormy Daniels on whether there's a business record violation in New York, which many people perceive to be a political persecution. Uh, you have, you know, Democrats really screwing the pooch in California with Dianne Feinstein and not being able to appoint any judges because she's on a committee that she's not well enough to show up for, and Republicans saying that they're not going to play ball and they're going to obstruct that, but, which I think is all fair play. I'm not criticizing yeah, any yeah. of that. The point that I'm making is that everything that's going on in American politics is gamesmanship, it's posturing, it's I'm going to make woke Disney the bet noir of the Republican Party. And what we're not talking about in the middle of all of this is that 15 million people were just kicked off of Medicaid. We're not talking about inflation. We're not talking about cost of living. We're not talking about the pyramid scheme that is the housing market and the myth that we're supposed to be able to grow our individual wealth through this scheme that an entire generations now after Gen X are completely shut out of for the large part. And it's really frustrating, and there's no wonder there's such a loss of faith and confidence in politics and people who are looking to outsiders like RFK Jr. It's no wonder some people think the federal government is weaponized against them. I mean, <laughs> that was the name of the committee hearing. It was a, it was a committee hearing about the weaponization of the federal government. Yep. And, and she's Stacey Plaskett <laughs> is trying to disprove that the federal government is being weaponized by yep. sending a letter threatening five years jail time for misspeaking at a hearing about that yep. very subject. That is incredible. That's some boldness from this so-called member of Congress. I say so-called because she's a delegate, not a representative. More rising right after this. Florida has banned lessons on gender identity and sexual orientation in all K-12 public school grades in an expansion of the parental rights in education law, which detractors call the Don't Say Gay Bill. The previous version of this law banned the instruction of these subjects up to the third grade. Now the bill uh, include, will include 4 through 12 as well, students as old as 18. The new rule comes as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis travels throughout the first presidential primary state, South Carolina, where he's boasted of his protection of civil liberties in the Sunshine State. Meanwhile, residents of South Florida are working to pick up the pieces from severe flooding that devastated parts of the state last week. Republican State Senator Marco Rubio spoke about the current fuel shortages the region is experiencing. Hmm. What's happening right now in Miami and in Fort Lauderdale with gasoline is crazy. You can't find gasoline anywhere. 
Uh, this has been going on since Sunday, and they're blaming it on the floods that impacted the port. And I know that, that was a factor, but it's been four days. This should have been figured out by now. And they're blaming it on consumer panic. Yeah, people are panicked because they got to get to work. They got places to go. And you either can't find gas or you have to wait in line for like two hours down the street where you're probably going to run out of gas while you're waiting. Now, AOC responded to this video saying, sir, the they here is you. You work in the government and followed up saying, like, there is no way the senator doesn't have the governor's phone number. Try calling him, find out what the problems are, call the administration, give people specific updates. Does she have a point there? I think maybe she does. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to the, uh, I, you know, I think the, the, the part of this uh, viewers will really want to hear about is the expansion of what has been called the Don't Say Gay bill. I, wanna, I wanted to reread what the actual portion of the bill is that pertains to this. It says, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Mm -hmm. So that would be expanded through grade 12. Um, yeah. I mean, if it just said, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity should be age appropriate and developmentally appropriate. That would be broad, but I don't think, and maybe not a good idea because it's subject it's to misinterpretation, yeah. but I don't think maybe that, maybe people wouldn't object to it as much. And it kind of, and it does say that, but then it also says the other part. So I think it's not a well-written bill, to be honest. Yeah, and if that... You could just say yeah. it should be age-appropriate, it should be generally appropriate. Um, I understand, uh, I, I don't know that this is happening, but to the extent parents have the fear that this is happening, this was trying to prevent teachers in classes for young kids talking about gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, this is obvious. Now, expanding it to, you know, kids who are teenagers who are going to be more than capable of finding about finding out about sexual orientation and gender identity given their access to the internet and peer groups and everything I don't know I don't know what you're trying to prevent here because you're not going to stop kids from so, learning about this stuff so the fundamental issue that a lot of people have had is one they predicted accurately that the argument that this is about young kids who are not developmentally able to appreciate these lessons were being taught this, indoctrinated, et cetera, a lot, of, a lot of skeptics said, this isn't really about young kids. And now that they've expanded it up to 12th graders, a lot of those concerns seem to have been validated. Moreover, because there are criminal penalties attached to violations of this law, a law that, as you've pointed out, is pretty vague, there are concerns that a teacher who, let's say, is gay, making reference to the fact that they and their partner went to the grocery store over the weekend, mm. or a child whose parents are gay if it comes up in class and he says, my mommies did this, my daddies did this, and another kid says, wait, you have two mommies? If the teacher says anything at all, that they could be subject to criminal pen penalties as a consequence. So at the very least, even yeah, if you I, believe I, I don't think in that's a law like classroom this, instruction, but I concede that it's vague enough that I would understand why people someone will be concerned you know, about that. And, and many and many you know critics of this bill have said there is a kind of personal discussion of personal, personal, personal intimacies between straight couples that has been permitted in classrooms. Mm -hmm. There was a viral clip of a teacher who, who hosted a full wedding for herself, and you know, she was getting married in real life, but her kids were really interested in what was going on with her, so she had a classroom wedding, and everybody participated, and the kids loved it. There was a lot of conversation around that viral clip because people were asking, well, 
what if I were gay and did this exact same thing in the classroom, people would be tearing their hair down, that this was some kind of indoctrination. And so the question is, can anyone really make an argument that this is anything other than trying to have discriminatory treatment about the fact of gay people existing and talking about that in the, in the classroom when the law is written in the way that it's written and we have a society that obviously treats heterosexual relationships and that are in fact sexual relationships, discussion of those in the classroom as par for the course and normal, but any discussion of the existence of a homosexual relationship as somehow deviant. Right. I don't really disagree with anything you just said. If I was trying to steel man, however, you know, the case in favor of this bill, I would reword it to target what I think is is more understandably objectionable, which is some of the teaching materials I've seen from activist groups, uh, even for 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 gender-related subjects that are clearly aimed at younger people, the the gender-bred man, the some of that kind of stuff. What's the gender-bred man? Um, you can Google him. He's uh, he's supposed to. He's teaching kids about the difference between orientation and <laughs> romantic love, and you know what? And if some parents don't want their kids being exposed to that, I think that is actually their right, and they should be empowered to have their kids in a school environment that, broadly speaking engages in educational practices that corresponds with what the families want. And I do think they have that right. And, and I, now I don't, what I don't like is structuring the law in this yeah, vague way that could just threaten gay teachers and that thus everybody has to abide by. I continue to think it's okay for different families who believe different things and have different political views to have different educational standards for what their children are going to It, it is interesting, though, and we saw this, I think you can see it a little bit more clearly in the laws that are trying to limit what is taught about race in America. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit less polarizing than some of these trans issues or LGBT issues, at least. Um, there is this claim that it's about ideology. You can teach the facts, but it's about ideology. At the same time that you have teachers, there was that famous um, also Zoom call that went viral where a teacher was asking the principal, sincerely, am I allowed to say that slavery was bad? Mm -hmm. you, what, is it, what is the line between there was slavery <laughs> and we fought a war and the North won, I mean, I don't, and I slavery don't, ended. I genuinely don't know any conservatives who, maybe they're out there somewhere, who think you shouldn't be able to say slavery was bad. Right, but that's classroom. not the question. The question was this teacher was talking to their principal and asking a sincere question in a, like a private mm -hmm. Zoom call that ended up getting leaked, mm -hmm. saying, I, I, I just don't know. And the, and the principal was like, I don't know. I, I also don't know what to tell you. This is all very confusing for us. I talked to an, um, a couple of math teachers from Florida, math teachers, who call into my call-in show pretty regularly, who said that they've just, because of the fear of criminal penalties for these laws, have just shelved books are very hesitant to use anything that hasn't been thoroughly vetted. It's decimated the range of resources that people feel like they have at their disposal. And I do kind of feel like we're conceding a point a little prematurely. In other areas of academic discipline, we understand that we can learn about things that exist in the world without there necessarily being a value judgment. And it is interesting to me that we've all, in this conversation, we've kind of accepted the idea that the fact of people who exist in the world mm -hmm. who identify a different gender than they do, than their, than their uh, sex assigned at birth, is indoctrination in and of itself. And, and the fact of people who are gay and acknowledging that people are gay 
is indoctrination in and of itself. If there were a gay president, are we, would we not be allowed to talk about their spouse? If there was another kind of gay public figure, is it indoctrination for them to come up in the room? If we talk about some of these you know, civil rights well, leaders who are famously gay, or musicians who are famously gay, or other people in history right. in class, but let's is that indoctrination? That is, it, is it wrong for parents, maybe religious parents, to think that, to, to want their kids to learn about sex from from them or from their church or something rather than from their public school teacher. It's not wrong and they can teach so their, their kid, kindergarten teacher. They can teach their kid about sex. They I mean the, but the, they can't but have any minute, power over sex, their Let's not put sex if the many people agree that there is an age appropriate time to talk about sex. And that is when people are older, approaching puberty mm -hmm. and having sexual feelings and potentially acting on them. And so therefore people should know before they engage in dangerous behavior what sex is. So that I would argue that gives parents an ample opportunity to be the first ones to talk to their kids about sex. This is this law, it you know, this law initially yeah. was for younger age groups yeah. and about it just said make things age appropriate which I think a lot of folks could agree with so that's not really the issue here right yeah I, I think instruction on sex and gender and orientation should be age appropriate is is not controversial and is sort of what the bill says again I would tweak it so that that's all it would say and then there wouldn't be any controversy. Well, I would also take away some of these criminal penalties because God forbid you're wrong. And is it gonna cause people to have this freezing effect? We talk so much about the freezing effect mm -hmm. on speech that some of these laws can have. And I think it's pretty dangerous to tell teachers that they have to be walking on eggshell lest they be hit with a, an enormous fine on their very small salaries or potentially incarcerated because they transgress because a kid perhaps even brought up because kids ask questions kids ask inappropriate questions all the time and if a child asks you something in a classroom and you respond even trying to change Say, the subject or downplay it ask mommy and daddy that's the response that they should get we got to leave it at that more rising right after this He seems to have no qualms in taking advantage of Senator Feinstein's extended absence from the Senate. On Tuesday, Senate Republicans blocked Democrats' request to temporarily replace her in the Judiciary Committee while she continues to recover from shingles at home in California. Feinstein asked Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer for a temporary substitute last week after several Democrats called on her to resign. In the months following Feinstein's leave, the Senate Judiciary Committee has been unable to confirm President Biden's pending judicial nominations. There are currently 15 such nominations hanging in the balance, all of which have had confirmation hearings, but not a single vote has been cast because of this absence. Six more are waiting for hearings. Now, Dems on the Hill continue to splinter over whether the veteran senator should step down, but according to a political report, the grim reality that they might not be able to hold off the inevitable is also setting in. But they're really in a bind because even if she does resign, there's no problem um, replacing her as Senate. a member of the Senate because Gavin Newsom can do that and he's a Democrat and that's all fine. But my understanding is to get this replacement onto that committee, it would be the same as if she's being replaced by a current Democratic member of the Senate. Republicans, in other words, in a very closely divided Senate, there needs to be some Republican uh, buy-in to that idea. As long as Republicans remain unanimously opposed to the idea of getting Democratic judges confirmed, they can easily block this person, whether it's whether it's a replacement outside the current Senate or a replacement within the Senate, it's, it's all the same. So normally these Senate, these uh, 
appoint, appointments to these committees are uh, done at the beginning of the year by unanimous consent, and everybody's in it together. Right. Um, there is more of an incentive to be con congenial and collaborative uh, when everyone's looking right. to get their appointments at the same well, time. Well, because Republicans need some, right. right, it has to be give and take because it's a, it's a right. compromise. But right now— This is a different situation, <laughs> especially since— because Democrats can act more quickly on this, there have now been all of these media cycles about how important it is for the, the Democrats' entire judicial appointment plan for this reappointment to happen. So now, at this point, even if conservatives had hypothetically been willing to, you know, be minchy about this, now they're in a situation where they would take political heat, and rightly so, I think. Conservative viewers on Fox News and Newsmax would hate them for it. So now it's being covered as um, this is the first step in the Democrats' plan to appoint activist judges mm -hmm. and take over the Supreme Court and yada, yada, yada. And so even Republicans who would like to play along are basically politically constrained from doing so. This is an incredibly irresponsible move on the behalf of Dianne Feinstein. It's one that many people called out and anticipated when she was running for re-election last time around. Democrats were told we were being right. sexist and inappropriate. Um, and Nancy Pelosi and others have continued this line. Kirsten Gillibrand, we talked about this earlier in the week, have continued that line right up into the present. And literally, Democrats, like, you, you can't even, like, I, Republicans should, should be doing what they're doing right now. That's called politics. And the fact that Democrats have been playing fast and loose with our judiciary and then turning around and blaming the situation they're in on people like Jill yeah. Stein is abhorrent. The time to remedy this was when they were deciding to put Feinstein on this committee in the first place, yeah. when, they, when they do this organizing, as you said, at the beginning of the year. It is, it's just ludicrous, it's just shooting yourself in the yeah, foot. Yeah, fine, Not she's gonna a, run again. Don't put her on the committee. Right, right. don't put her on this committee, especially. Yeah. They, they could have easily anticipated. She, I mean, she, she could have been honest with the state of her health and just, you know, There's been reports that she has term. not been mentally competent for a long right. time. For longer than for a year. Yes. Ryan and I were talking about this before <laughs> you were even hosting Rising. So it's, it's just... It's just incredible. And by the way, didn't. this isn't the first time Democrats have pulled something like this. We've already talked about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's failures. But a, an, an under-discussed aspect of the judicial strategy on the right versus the left is that if you look at it, conservative justices tend to retire or take what's called senior status, where you're still technically on the bench, but your replacement is picked at a time when there are Republicans in office. So they very strategically stepped down, and over the course of decades, that has resulted in a significant advantage for Republicans in the appointment game. Democrats, on the other hand, seem to be doing this yes-queen nonsense, <laughs> where everyone just stays in because it's their turn, male or female, and they retire when they want to retire. So I understand an individual saying, well, I don't want to get off the bench. I could have another 20 years left in me. Who knows at that mm -hmm. stage in your life? But there's this option of just taking senior status. Right. You get fewer cases, spend more time with your family, you're still on the bench, but you're able to say, okay, I'm a federal judge, this seat is actually important, my guy or girl is sure in office, thing. let me step down now. And Democrats strategically, there is no, there's no strategy on the part of Democrats. And honestly, it's getting, it's exhausting as someone who is left aligned to have to pretend that these are, this is like some Machiavellian Republican scheme, as opposed to Democrats not realizing that the, the, the game that they are playing. Right. It's a pretty basic plot on the Republican side of things. Like, no, we won't let you have, have another person fill her seat and confirm more justices we don't like. 
Obviously. Yeah. You, you cannot be mad at that. Yeah. And, and honestly, is there going to be any accountability for Chuck Schumer? Is there going to be any accountability for a party leadership? We saw that the, the Democrats lost the House. I mean, we did. They did. They did a lot better uh, in midterms than anybody expected. But they could have actually won if they hadn't failed so miserably in New York. Was Schumer or any other New York Democrat going to be held accountable for that? At what point are Democrats going to stop looking to third parties? All the leadership Donald Trump is New York based. Yeah, it is. Hakeem Jeffries, yeah. you get rewarded sure. for this kind of behavior. So Democrats seem to think that they're, the big problem is Trump and fascism in one six. And I'm not saying that those things aren't issues. But the reason the Democrats are losing and enabling all of the fascism and the things that they don't, they don't like politically is because the Democrats are asleep at the wheel and have been for a very long time. <sighs> Feinstein asleep at the wheel. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. It's... it's... I, I, I got to say, I hope she doesn't have a license. <laughs> More okay. rising after this. Meta, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, is censoring the Nord Stream report alleging U.S. involvement. Now, you may recall in February, veteran journalist Seymour Hirsch infamously reported that the U.S. was waging, had waged a covert operation leading to the sabotage, uh, and that was according to an anonymous source that he spoke with for that Substack piece he wrote. And now investigative reporter Michael Schellenberger pointed out in a video posted on his Twitter, a quick search for Cy Hirsch's bombshell allegation that the CIA is behind the explosion shows that Facebook redirects readers to a Norwegian version of an article fact-checking Cy Hirsch's claims. Fact-checking, uh, and I put that in quotation marks, here to elaborate on what appears to be a blatant act of censorship is Michael Schellenberger himself. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks for having me. Okay, so walk us through what you actually see when you try to post a link on Facebook to Cy Hirsch's original reporting on who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Sure. Well, the first thing that comes up is a warning. It's a, it actually, it's a pop-up and it shows, it basically says this is, uh, it, it says, I'll, I'll read it specifically. It says, before you share this content, you might want to know there's additional reporting from Factisk, which is the Norwegian fact-checking partner to Facebook. And then it's in Norwegian. You can't actually read what it says. <laughs> if you share, if you choose to share anyway, which is the less highlighted option, the highlighted option is cancel. If you share anyway, then it puts up a, a big black square that says false information checked by independent fact-checkers. And I posted it to to my personal Facebook page, my author Facebook page, and the Substack public our, our our Substack public page on Facebook, and it all did the same thing. And it all every time I would say something slightly different, but I was kind of protesting the censorship. And then and then really, it just did not get very much interaction compared to other posts. So I well, suspect no wonder why not because it's, it's bottled. It's worth noting that in addition, because I just tried to do this myself, uh, and it's worth noting that in addition to telling you that, you know, you might want to know that there is additional reporting and asking you if you really want to share this, it, it warns you maybe even threatens you that pages, quote, pages and websites that repeatedly publish or share false news will see their overall distribution reduced and, re and be restricted in other ways. So it's basically telling you, post wow. this at your own risk. We might throttle your account as a consequence. Well, that's new, uh, Brian. I did not know that. That's shocking. That's new from what we had last night. So 
so this is, um, so I think it's you know important to clarify here. So f what Facebook does is different from some other social media companies. Facebook has effectively deputized fact-checking, again, I think very important to put the fact-checking in quotes, these independent organizations that are almost contracted by Facebook to do fact-checking. A lot of these organizations seem to me to be little more than just kind of progressive activist groups, you know, with very ideological agendas on COVID, on climate, on some other things. I've run up against this. I've shared, I had an art, a Reason article where I would share it on Facebook. It, you just, it was really just aggregating an Atlantic article about you know mask mandates not working in school. Nowhere did I make the claim that masks don't work. I just said, here's some evidence that mask mandates didn't improve outcomes in school. And then again, it's, and it's not Facebook doing it. It's the fact-checking group has this power to say, oh, you made a false claim, and now this is going to be suppressed. And in that case, I ended up going, so I contacted people I know at Facebook. Obviously, this isn't a solution everyone can do, but I, I have contacts, and I was like, how dare you? You know, you've you got to get this people in line. They're actually they're actually um, they're actually making up a claim that I didn't say. I, it, it says on my post, the, the fact check says that you said masks don't work. Well, that's not true, but I never said that. So you're like introducing misinformation if you're saying I said that. Long way yes. of saying that I think the way Meta handles this is not good, even though it's not technically Meta doing it, but they have they have Contact, yielded it yeah. to these organizations. I think there's also something else to point out here, which is that last month, and I think you guys reported on this too, Facebook agreed to start censoring so-called misinformation or false narratives, which of course means that there can be true facts that could lead people to conclusions that they don't like, came out of the White House Summit for Democracy Summit, and Facebook agreed to do this if it would weaken our support to Ukraine amidst Russia's war of aggression. Okay, so that was last month. Well, the, the fact-checking organization, which is called Factisk, who I did hear back from, by the way, they are funded by a Norwegian state-owned media company. So you have to remember the original Seymour Hersh article, which argues that the U.S. blew up this pipeline, Nord Stream pipeline, he argues that it had the help from the Norwegian government. So here you have a situation where the Norwegian government is involved in, a, in censoring an article that claims that it participated in the blowing up of a pipeline. I can't imagine a more direct conflict of interest than that one. And then you combine that with the fact that the head of misinformation at Facebook came from CIA, the head of uh, its uh, sort of security at, at, at Facebook came from the Atlantic Council, which is basically NATO's think tank and PR operation. And then he worked at NATO before that. You start to, it starts to look like the security state is directly involved in pressuring or directly involved in censoring content that it views as problematic on Facebook's platform. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's worth knowing, noting the Norway connection isn't trivial. Sai writes right. that Norway was the perfect place to base the mission because the U.S. military has vastly expanded its presence inside Norway, um, who uh, has a long border, obviously, with Russia, that the Pentagon has created high-paying jobs and contracts uh, in the country, uh, including upgrading and expanding the American Navy and Air Force base facilities in Norway. I mean, Norway is a non-trivial part of the story, just for folks who haven't read it themselves or who need a refresher from the last time we covered it in depth on, on this show. And the detail 
in Cy Hirsch's reporting as part of why so many people invested it in more credibility than some of the more superficial accounts that have since come down the pike. So this connection that you're pointing out now between who funds the media that's doing the fact, fact check and the substance of Cy's story is far from trivial. So have you heard any 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 response then from Meta or Facebook? Because your tweet about this got quite a bit of traction. Yeah, so I did hear back from the fact checker, which again is called, it's the Norwegian fact checker, it's called Factisk. And I heard back from the editor-in-chief, Christopher Egeberg, and he said that I disagree, he said, quote, I disagree with your premise. Fact checking and critical journalism is not about censoring the debate, but enlightening the debate. He said, as far as I know, you are free to share and comment on the Hirsch article in question, known as being banned or silenced. So first of all, that's just disingenuous. If you put a black square over an article warning people not to read it, that is textbook censorship. The fact that you can still access it does not change that censorship. In fact, I think when you, I've looked up, there's been, you know, what is censorship, what's not censorship. Just putting a warning label on it is also a, considered a form of censorship. That's not a controversial claim. So the idea that they're just adding additional reporting is not true. This is Facebook censoring this. And I would just note, look, you know, Cy Hirsch is controversial. I actually don't know if he's right. I am in no way endorsing Cy Hirsch's interpretation. My colleague, Leighton Woodhouse, believes that Cy Hirsch got his reporting on Syria wrong. I don't have an opinion on that. Cy Hirsch also won the Pulitzer for one of the worst atrocities by U.S. forces in Vietnam. He's been a reporter for 50 years. I would like to make up my own mind about what's going on. And I would also just note, and again, I feel the need to make a defense of the First Amendment, in a, it, which is a bit surprising, but the debate over the Cy Hirsch article, a free debate over the Cy Hirsch article, might illuminate things beyond whether or not the U.S. did it or whether it involved Norway. We might find out that the U.S. did it, but Cy Hirsch was wrong in how they did it. Or we might find that the Norwegians did it alone, or maybe the Ukraines did it, or somebody else did it. But the whole point of the First Amendment is to protect this debate, because the debate is what it brings more truth and more facts to light, allows these things to be sorted out by the public, rather than having them decided by a few people in one very powerful digital organization at Facebook, which happens to have executives from the national security organizations directly involved in this operation. Yeah, I'm going to get in touch with uh, Facebook and see if they stand by this. I, I suspect, given my previous engagement with the company itself rather than the fact checkers, they do occasionally, you know, get them in line in egregious examples, which this is certainly one. Doesn't fix the problem of this, you know, being the reality in the first place. But uh, I expect we'll have more to say on this uh, very soon. Michael Schellenberger, thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Thanks for having me, guys. Elon Musk's SpaceX launched the world's most powerful rocket today, and it exploded four minutes into test flight. The Starship actually exploded. Let's watch.
I was hoping to see a cutback to the room to see if it got as quiet as uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, election campaign room in 2016. <laughs> Musk, of course, took to Twitter to congratulate the SpaceX team shortly after the explosion, saying, learned a lot for next uh, the next test launch in a few months. While the rocket failed to reach orbit, Musk had tamped down expectations just before the launch, saying it might take several tries before Starship succeeds at this test flight. So I'm seeing there is some dunking on this going on on social media right now, saying like, well, you know, from the usual, everything Elon Musk does fails, and this is bad, and this is hilarious. But it seems like I mean, a, a month ago, he said, I, I'm quoting him now from a demo a month ago, he said, I'm not saying it will get to orbit. I'm guaranteeing excitement. It won't be boring. I think it's got, I don't know, hopefully about a 50% chance of reaching orbit. So I think. They think this is not spin to say it from from SpaceX's perspective. This was actually a successful test launch, and they did not have further expectations for the rocket beyond this. They learn, they do it again, they'll get farther next time. So it's 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 a little it's you know you're the usual suspects want to be like, wow, his rocket blew up, but that they 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 weren't going to land it. That's what was going to happen. Yeah, well, I think largely people are responding to SpaceX tweeting out that the Starship experienced a rapid unscheduled disassembly before stage separation. The phrase rapid unscheduled disassembly is trending, and I think the reason why folks are dunking on this is in large part because Elon Musk has demonstrated that he's rather thin-skinned, that his ego tends not to be able to bear mild conflict. He shut down the very important Twitter files project because Matt Taibbi dared to use another app. And so when you see a tweet like this from SpaceX, it does have the aura of a cope of trying to downplay what actually happened and characterize it as something other than a failure. Now, I think that your point is well taken. Apparently, the main goal of the project today was to clear, for the rocket to clear the tower and reach the quote unquote first stage. Uh, as you said, the, the, the chances of reaching orbit were only around 50%, and they're hoping to get it up to 80% by the year's end. But again, I think in the context of some of the other failures of Twitter, and of Tesla and now of this rocket ship, that is like in contrast with this really strong argument made by his supporters that doesn't really allow for any criticism of him well, and anywhere. And, and we're seeing these, I think, both two exaggerated fronts clashing over this issue right now. Yeah, I, I think not everything he's done with Twitter is smart, as we say you know, a million times in a million and a half segments about it. That doesn't mean this was not a success. I think it was basically what they intended, and people are just looking for reasons to be anti-Elon Musk. Um, a a take-haver that I generally like, who hosts the Political Beats podcast, um, Jeff, at Esoteric CD, um, he says, Musk is a dummy when it comes to running Twitter or his mouth, but the SpaceX launch today was an actual success, not a failure. So yeah, well, some I, people are just seems... having, having fun on the internet. Uh, Will Bunch, a uh, historian, I believe, <laughs> tweeted out, Elon's rocket briefly gets high, then crashes on 420. He's, of course, uh, made a lot of pot jokes himself. Okay, that's funny. He, <laughs> Elon, I appreciate that. Elon said that 420 was going to be the day that he got rid of all the blue checks because he really enjoys uh, marijuana humor. Uh, and it doesn't seem like that has happened, uh, at least so far. There's some hours. Were we supposed to lose our blue checks today? Uh, I'm, I'm a Twitter blue subscriber oh. and have been for a long time right, now. That's right. Was I supposed to lose it? I, I still got it. I, yeah. I checked on Halle Berry, who said that she was uh, going to be losing her blue check yesterday, and she still had it when I looked at her account this morning. Is my blue <laughs> check about to experience an, an uh, unscheduled disassembly? <laughs> a rapid I certainly hope not. Disassembly. I certainly hope not. It, it might. I just hope it doesn't take the whole site down with it. All right, well, we'll have more rising right after this.
six-year-old girl and her father were shot by a North Carolina homeowner after a basketball rolled into his yard. That's according to Queen City News in Charlotte. And a manhunt is underway for 24-year-old Robert Lewis Singletary, who is considered armed and dangerous. He's accused of shooting six-year-old Kinsley White and members of her family. Now, Kinsley, she's okay. She was treated for gunshot wounds to the face and released from the hospital overnight. Singletary was previously arrested in December for assaulting his 21-year-old girlfriend with a mini sledgehammer. So Kinsley White's father hospitalized, but not, I, I think, in danger. Yeah. Um, but they're all, you know, concerned because this man, the suspect, has not been apprehended. So it seems that some other kids uh, were playing basketball and right. a, a ball rolled into his yard. He comes out guns blazing and is on the run. Um, he is being charged as well, in addition to those charges, um, for, for wrongly possessing a firearm as a felon. Yeah. And, and he was being, he was in the midst of being prosecuted for this. The attacks on his girlfriend. The attacks on the girlfriend. Yeah. So he, he had not, I, I think it had not gone to trial yet, or he, he had not pled, he, he had not submitted a plea in the case. Yeah, so yet. apparently he moved into the neighborhood within the last uh, couple mm -hmm. of weeks. Uh, and this seems like one of these kind of unprompted, they're calling them like rage shootings. It feels a little bit, I mean, it feels like they're getting increasingly erratic, uh, mm -hmm. increasingly sporadic. Like the, if, if the first one is Ralph Yarl, where a boy rings a doorbell and the homeowner shoots him through the front door. And the right. second one is, uh, I might be mixed up the order of events here, the two cheerleaders who were, went to get into the wrong car. Um, no, the second one was the, the group of friends at right. night who turned around in a driveway. Someone comes out of their, car, their house and shoots someone who was in the passenger, a passenger in the car. The third one is a teenager who thinks they're getting in a carpool in the wrong car, realizes their mistake, gets back in their own vehicle, and the owner of that car gets out, walks up to their car, they roll down their window thinking they're just gonna apologize, and they get shot as a consequence. And now this fourth one is, a group of kids let a ball roll into a yard, a homeowner comes out or a resident comes out shooting and ends up shooting an unrelated family that lives on the street, hitting both the parents and grazing the cheek of a young girl. It feels increasingly erratic and attenuated from any kind of standard ground law or anything, especially since this guy seems to be a felon or have been, had this kind of criminal activities in his past and unlawfully owned the gun He's, in the first instance. It, it, because some of these other incidents had a racial context that was being uh, commented on, I should note here that the suspect is a black man, the, the family, the, the gunshot victims are, a, are white people. Um, and, you know, right. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Only one of these stories has a racial component. We haven't been talking about the, the kids. I didn't say around we. I said the. No, no, no. But it's worth. The, it's not. I, I don't want to. All of these. It's not as though these are all stories where we, that the public has been talking about because there's a racial component. But this one has a black perpetrator. No, 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 right? no, no. Just in the only yard. Just one in the first of these one. stories involves a black victim and a white perpetrator. The. The second story, the driveway story, involves all white people. The right. third story involves a Latino perpetrator and what seems like a, at least one mixed-race cheerleader and one white cheerleader, one half-black cheerleader and one white cheer, cheerleader. So it's all over the map. Mm -hmm. So this isn't—I I, don't—there are there's racial subtext to all kinds of things, but, the, but what groups these stories together is the idea of rage attacks, not, mm -hmm. not race. Sure. And, and also, I mean, what groups them together is we happen to have— Covered them this week, but that should not suggest to anyone because I don't, I don't, I'd have to do a, we'd have to do a statistical analysis. Crime, horrible things happen 
every day. It's a big country. There's a lot sure. of crime. Uh, it's a, a bad, unfortunate reality. Just because we covered a number of these incidents this week doesn't mean they were actually more likely or more prominent this week versus last week. Maybe they were, maybe yeah. they weren't. Um, as I've noted before, I, you know, I know from looking at, for instance, hate crime statistics and some other things of that nature that I've reported on, that actually ideological, politically motivated killing in this country is not a very big category. We, we pay a lot of attention to acts of violence where there appears to be a discernible political or ideological goal, but angry neighbor does something violent, um, uh, vi workplace violence, spousal violence, and organized crime are by far massively more likely reasons for violence than I disagree with you politically, right? I have a discernible ideology. Yeah, we, can't, we focus on those, but what we're seeing here, this is actually this is this is res more responsible for crime overall. Yeah, the the Louisville bank shooter was. Yeah, you know, there'll be a work a workplace yeah. violence instance where he went in before work and shot a, a bunch of his colleagues. This is from NPR. Uh, they t spoke to Allison Anderman, who's a senior counsel and director director of local policy at the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. They asked her about whether there was any trends that we can identify here. She says rage induced shootings are on the rise, though still mm -hmm. relatively rare, and it's difficult to track because these kind of shooting reports largely come from media and survey data and law enforcement statements, and there's no national repository to really be able to track it um, with more scientific accuracy. Mm -hmm. Although when asked why more people seem to be increasingly provoked to these kinds of shootings, uh, she points to, quote, a confluence of factors over the last few years, including an increase in gun ownership, a steady weakening of gun laws in many states, and the gun industry's narrative of fear that encourages people to arm up at all times in self-defense. My last point at least seems to be uh, the case in the Ralph Yarl shooting, which was the first one with the boy, the 16-year-old who rung the doorbell and was shot through the door. The shooter's grandson has now come forward saying that his grandfather is racist in his view and uh, has traded in some of these racist conspiracy uh, theories. Don Lemon recently spoke to the grandson of that suspect, Andrew Lester, who has pled not guilty in that case. Let's watch some of that interview. Do you believe your grandfather is racist? Uh, I believe he holds, holds racist tendencies. And beliefs. Why do you say that? Uh, he's just a stock American Christian male. It's uh, the older, you know, that's just how they are. It's uh, the conspiracies and weird, random, racist things that they say. Yeah, so, and it doesn't make sense, but they're just scared. Now, listen, you're generalizing uh, a lot here about, you said, older Christian white males. <laughs> but what do you mean by that? What do you mean they're scared? Talk to me more, please. Uh, yeah, just uh, I feel like a lot of people of that generation are caught up in this 24-hour uh, news cycle of fear and paranoia perpetuated by some other news stations. And he was fully into that, sit and watch uh, Fox News all day, every day, blaring in his living room. And I think that stuff really kind of reinforces this negative view of, of minority groups and leads people to be a little, it doesn't necessarily lead people to be racist, but it reinforces and galvanizes racist people. We also wanted to 
Um, I'm sorry, did you want to react to No, that? go ahead. I, I, we wanted to do a, a few other updates since we did end up covering a number of crime cases this week. So the cheerleader that was shot is currently recovering from surgery to remove her ruptured spleen, which sounds awful, but uh, that's the update in that case. So... Yeah, it, 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 look, it's difficult. I understand why Don Lemon would be interested in talking to Mr. Lester's grandson because it is, it does confirm, I think, what a lot of people on the broad left think about some of the rhetoric that you get from some conservative outlets that does seem to heighten people's fear. Uh, he spoke specifically of an interest in, quote, QAnon-level conspiracy theories, um, saying he used to make disparaging comments about black people, gay people, and immigrants, that he kept a large number of firearms in his home, including rifles and handguns, um, that he uh, was interested in election denial, um, that he watched Fox News uh, a lot. The 24-hour news cycle of a fear and paranoia, he says, from right-wing networks influenced his grandfather. Um, well, I mean, this is kind of what I'm talking about. We're going to closely scrutinize this guy and his views and how his inclination toward violence developed. But that's but then we have three other incidents where. Well, I think it's completely fair to note that the last shooter has a history of violence. He has beaten his girlfriend in what sounds like a really brutal attack, and that right. he's a criminal on the run. Is that not a relevant part of his background to bring up in the same way that and are this his person's political views? Relevant is his is he racist against white people? Does who cares? Well, I think that someone having a history of violence is uh, relevant to the motive. I think that is certainly relevant. Yeah. Wait a minute. Is relevant to the motive of why you would randomly shoot a bunch of innocent people? I also think having suspicion and paranoia of black people in particular would help people to understand why you would shoot through your glass door at a 16-year-old who did nothing other than ring your doorbell. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it's clarifying context to help us understand why this might have happened. Now, it might be the case that this man allegedly, according to his grandfather, having a long history of saying disparaging things about black people, um, having a lot of guns in the home, had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he shot a 16-year-old black kid in the head and then shot him again when he was on the ground and then declined to offer him any medical assistance so that the black kid had to go to three other houses before he was able to get taken to the hospital. Maybe those things have nothing to do with each other. But, and maybe the fact that this uh, most recent shooter brutally attacked his girlfriend and, and uh, was a felon has nothing to do with the fact that he brutally attacked his neighbors and shot wantonly injuring a six-year-old child, narrowly missing, grazing a six-year-old child's cheek with her bullet. But I think all of these things are relevant to discuss. Well, we certainly hope for justice in all of these cases. Tomorrow on Rising, Jason Nichols and Amber Athey will be bringing you Friday's news, so give that a watch, trying out some new potential hosts. Bree and I will be back, of course, next week. Hope to see you here. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And for those who like to listen while you're on the move, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can't miss it. Bye-bye. See you later.